Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Welcome, Regenerates. Welcome to another show of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Today, I have the honor of presenting you with Alnor Latha, who is a sacred activist, one of the co-founders of the Brave Earth community in Costa Rica. Alnor and I get into some really interesting territory, at least for me, at the intersection of postmodern theory and the uh, critique of capital L liberalism that postmodernism um, invites and the sort of more transcendent sacred truth that can maybe help depolarize that. And we chat a little bit about culture wars taking place and cancel culture and how that's starting to move into the, in quotes, regenerative movement and regenerative agriculture. So I really appreciated Alnor's perspective on all of this. And he's always a really gentle and, and beautiful man to speak to. So I'm very grateful to bring him to you today. All right. Welcome, Alnor, to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on, brother. It's, um, you're one of my favorite conversation partners, even, even in those times where we've been like pounding the table and, uh, you know, um, had disagreements. I just so appreciate your insight and your keen mind and your big heart and your, all the good work you're doing in the world. So I'm just, I'm just really humbled and excited to have you on. Thanks, brother. Yeah, I feel the same. And so, yeah, excited to be on. And uh, you were just sharing a little bit about uh, the happenings down there in, in, at Brave Earth, um, some community reciprocity, solidarity, um, food forest work happening, which is really beautiful to hear. Yeah, one of our community members, Alain, is uh, leading a project called Fuerza de Mor, um, Love Force, basically, which is a, a kind of mix between uh, um, a mutual aid network focused on uh, food sovereignty in this uh, in our immediate sort of region, um, and there's a like a community policing uh, and council aspect to it, and. Uh, and and also this food forest, which is kind of the the the, the physical center of it. So we we he, I think he just signed a lease for for twenty years for an eight acre piece of land that uh, will essentially be like a zone two in permaculture language, you know, for the for the community. So all and like the yeah. It, this is the the neighboring property. This um, is about a five minute drive down okay. the street, kind of right when you enter the the broader community. It's the, the kind of perfect space. And there's a little like clubhouse there, a little rancho. Beautiful. And so, yeah, we're, we're based in, in Costa Rica. Um, yeah, well, why don't you just share just a bit of context? We have so much shared context. I, you know, part of the, part of my aesthetic around podcasts is, for me, I actually love podcast conversations where I, I feel like I'm a little lost when I'm listening into people talking because it engages my mind to try to figure out. So I'm not one of those podcasters that tries to just like boil everything down and do bullet points and, you know, make it simple. No, let's just have our natural dynamic conversation and, and the context we share. That's that's. It's all about that in my mind. But with that said, <laughs> why don't you invite um, invite 
myself and and whoever might be listening on a just a little you know invitation to understand what is happening down in brave earth and this project that you're pouring your your heart and soul into right now yeah thanks for thanks for setting it up um we've so we've been here for about four years and uh uh, Gregory, in, in, in his previous incarnation, in your previous incarnation through Terragenesis, was actually helping us uh, with the, the design of the land and uh, the permaculture plans and the growing plans and all of that. So it's about an 88-acre property. Um, and we, have a, we just finished our retreat center, kind of healing arts center, um, focused on alternative healing modalities. There'll be a residential side. Um, as well, and then uh, a kind of 30-acre farm uh, in between. And then we have a neighbor, uh, Finca Luna Nueva, uh, who you know very intimately as well, Gregory, and, um, and another neighbor behind us. And so there's a broader kind of 240-acre commons that we're looking to, to plant out collectively. Um, it's so exciting. And for those listeners who are regular, you will... Um, recognize the voices of the other sort of uh, um, community members, Tom and Larry, Tom Newmark and Larry Copald have both also been on the show. So um, we um, got to cut, got to jam a little bit and catch up on what they're doing. Um, well, so I'm really excited about the way that you all are, sort of rooting a transformative community in place. And I'm really excited around the sort of syncretic um, approach to bringing spirituality into the conversation um, around transformation. And um, so those are all things, I mean, there's a bunch of, things on my mind as I'm thinking like, what do I want to talk to Elnor about? There's so much. Um, but I kind of thought that I might start with getting your take, just presencing and getting your take on, you know, creating some space maybe to, you know, share story and just honor um, David Graeber who passed away mm -hmm. and who I, I don't know what your relationship was with him, but I imagine, I know you, studied at the London School of Economics where he's a professor and I I've always felt sort of threads of him running through you know through you and yeah so I just thought maybe just presencing that and and giving a little space for that might be appropriate. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful place to start. Um, yeah I, I only met David a few times we we had a, a email correspondence over the years we initially met at, at Occupy. Um, I didn't even really know he was a, a well-known anthropologist at the time. Um, I just, yeah, I thought he was this, you know, quirky, disheveled, uh, you know, uh, anarchist. And uh, <laughs> and uh, a couple years later, we we got um, I got reconnected to his work uh, by reading. Uh, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, which was one of his really early uh, works that that became well known. Um, and then, the a dear friend of mine, Jason Hickel, uh, who's an, also an anthropologist and a colleague of 
David Graeber is and also taught at the LSC and comes from an anarchist political philosophy, um, gave me a copy of Debt, the first 5,000 years. Um, and then I started, you know, connecting the dots that this is the same person <laughs> that we yeah. I had met a, a couple of years ago at Occupy and um, was really blown away by, by the analysis of debt and, uh, yeah, his, his very unconventional approach at, at, at both pedagogy but also insights. You know, he, he was this very, like, non-obvious, non-linear thinker. Um, right. And uh, and then through the world, uh, the work we did uh, around the World Bank, um, we, we part of the rules, which was this activist collective I was part of, was an eight-year uh, experiment. We we ran uh, a campaign called uh, World versus Bank, which was putting attention on World Bank's land rights policies and how the the World Bank has displaced uh, over ten million people uh, in, in in the global south through their uh, big ag development projects. And uh, we we had we we went to twelve different World Bank offices around the world um, on a simultaneous day of action, and and David was one of the speakers at the London gathering, and just brought so much humor to the to to the the situation. And um, hmm. yeah, I, I think there's a the sort of interesting moment for the left where there's there's very few uh, people in especially the radical left, anarchist space, uh, bring a lot of joy to this work. You know, there's a sort of sense of self-flagellation and, you know, asceticism and self-denial that comes yeah. with the culture. And I feel like that, that is changing. And, and in many ways, like Standing Rock was a huge uh, moment of disequilibrium for that culture because prayer started coming in and following the lead of elders and, um, and, and I wouldn't say David Graeber was an elder in that sense, uh, yeah. you, you know, but he was, he was definitely more of the, the Hayoka archetype, the, the, the sacred clown, the misfit. Um, and, and I think that, that we, we need the Hayokas and we need the elders. And we definitely need a new culture for how we approach social change work. So, you know, just sort of digging into a couple of things, would you... Would you consider yourself, like, how do you feel about the label of left and leftist and sort of left wing, you know, as yeah. a descriptor of a movement and, you know, a philosophy ethos approach? And, and how does that, how does your, how do your feelings relate to, you know, what's going on in the world and just what you think is, I guess, maybe a, an appropriate an inspiring way to, to have, I guess, human tribal needs and identification mm -hmm. needs be met while maybe maintaining some amount of flexibility and cooperation and openness to the moment. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's such a moment of blur, right? This, this kind of like post-truth moment we're in, it's, uh, being fueled and amplified by conspiracy theories and you know it, yeah. it's like nobody knows who's sitting where anymore it's pretty crazy and it's and all of my really, all of my like you know natural health loving not all of them but definitely not you know um the the folks who are sort of don't necessarily trust the medicine establishment mm -hmm. 
and you know maybe sympathetic to you know in quotes anti-vax things and whatnot i see them sort of getting sucked into the sort of like trump universe yeah these interesting memes it's very confusing it's very it's very sophisticated psyops as well (laughs) it is it's very sophisticated and and (laughs) it used it used to be like that i had a uh, political philosophy professor say to me in, in very simple terms like there's two basic values there's equality and there's freedom and uh, they they are in in diametrical opposition to each other. Yeah. There's a tension. It's a dynamic tension. And the left values equality over freedom, and yeah. the right valued freedom over equality. And that was the sort of you know the basic that's the classic. That's the classic like you know almost like I would say classic capital L liberal approach to you know solving the problem of governance in a way yeah exactly and 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 what's interesting is with with the rise of sort of silicon valley libertarianism what we ended up seeing is this this sort of individualist um pursuit sort of be wrapped around all of this language um around social good and so it's sort of you know this the social good uh you know greenwashing world right the uh and 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 then what's interesting with, with woke libertarians? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and what's interesting about libertarianism is it's basically now we've amassed all of the wealth. Let's remove government and rules and structure. Whereas the the anarchist impulse is more prefigurative. It's like how do we create a world where we can localize power and people at a local level can decide how they want to live their lives um, and redistribution of historic resources is on the table. So it's a much more justice-based approach to- You couldn't do it otherwise, right? There would be, there's sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really poignant um, description of what sometimes seems to be a fuzzy difference between, you know, I mean, all of these terms, these labels, they get very blurry very quickly, but, you know, in quotes, a libertarian approach and in quotes, an anarchist approach that my, one of my favorite quotes is that uh, libertarians are just anarchists who still want to maintain police protection from their slaves. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, More or less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the belief is private property is, is somehow religion, right? And, and uh, amongst anarchism, it's the commons. We, we prejudice the commons as the, you know, there, there's that, um, uh, Kenneth J.K. Galbraith said, uh, uh, what capitalism does is it creates uh, um, private wealth and public squalor. And mm. what, what anarchism wants to do is reverse that, you know, which is, you know, private frugality, but public abundance. Well, yeah, don't, let's not do, maybe the f- interesting thing about that is maybe too often the discourse is around or perceived that it is just a switch and it is yeah. actually private squalor and <laughs> public wealth. And yeah. yeah, anyway, there's something there maybe. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's also, with the resources we have, there's no doubt we could create a system that would have private abundance within means and, uh, uh, and, and public abundance. But, but you know, the, the this is kind of the part of the culture of the West is we don't really understand limits or bounds, you know, and that, and that's a difficult conversation to have. And it's not a very popular conversation to have. So if you're a politician or, 
you know, even if you're a Greenpeace, right, you're not going to talk about consumption because consumption is too close to the root of, of the system. And, and I think this the driver, back. it's prefigured as the, as what creates peace. Yeah. Like if you listen to Peter Thiel or, you know, for, for whatever it's work as, as a, as an example of a non-woke libertarian <laughs> in Silicon Valley or whatever. Yeah. Um, what he's saying is straight up, just bare and naked, with the, the, the fastest way to peace is to increase the size, to always be increasing the size of the pie. And it doesn't matter how you allocate the slices within that pie, as long as the pie keeps increasing, society will be okay. Right. That's right. straight this up. Is, this That's is the kind the, of... Yeah. McDonald's diplomacy, right? And, and Thomas Friedman has yeah. sort of said similar things to this. And, and, and it's really scary, right? Because on, on two levels, one is that it's, it's ahistorical. You know, it doesn't look at any historical circumstances that have well, led to this moment. Yeah. Oh, man. I, in the, I, I listened to this podcast with uh, Peter Thiel and um, Eric Weinstein, um, mm -hmm. who's his like the managing director of his fund um, and also, you know, sort of a, a intellectual and sort of like the old Jewish tradition of almost like a rabbi almost. He's sort of creating kind of a, a thing, you know, mathematics. And anyway, um, their conversation was fascinating to me because because they were going back and they were pointing to the good old days of like the the late 18th century and early 19th century of US progress and industrial revolution. And they were like, yeah, look at all the growth that happened and look at all this amazing stuff. And I was thinking to myself as I was listening to them, you guys are aware that that was like completely fueled by ethnic genocide and slavery for, you know, 200 years that created that bubble that you're talking about in these sort of like, glowing starry-eyed terms <laughs> just like kind of face palming the whole conversation and well i think this is really now the new political divide is, is essentially growth or life there is no the, the sort of left right is not as relevant as the growth versus life yeah exactly right and and um essentially if i almost see this as in like four quadrants mm. right and it, it, it's kind of like um if, if we were to take the x-axis, it's like uh, an ahistorical lens to like, a, you know, history doesn't matter to a, a kind of, we have to address historical injustices, et cetera, you know. And then on the, the kind of y-axis would be the world is getting better, uh, you know, the kind of progress narrative versus a, a more nuanced, sophisticated, let's say kind of animist quantum ethic of, you know, time is cyclical, there's karmic implications, we have to be thoughtful of the consequences of our actions. And in the top right corner is this tech utopianism, right? It's like ahistorical, and it's based on this delusion that progress is an arrow. And it's just going up and to the right in perpetuity. And, and whenever we're not, there's this nostalgia to try to get back to those good old days of, of perpetual growth. Yeah. And the, the kind of response to that of a more historically uh, endowed structural analysis of power is more of a, yeah, I would say a kind of uh, anarcho-ecological uh, 
sort of interbeing ethic that it's we are connected to everything else and in order for us to get to a new system of possibility we ha we have to acknowledge historical injustices we have to have reparations at, at the heart of transformation we have to um, you know essentially do the redemption work of our ancestral lineages as part of our political economic reimagining yeah <clears throat> it's interesting and then you know just to like keep getting wading into the thick of this of the present moment i think you know i i mean i i, I think that framework is really compelling and i can sort of i, I think generally speaking i really we, we probably resonate pretty um we're quite probably attuned in, in a lot of ways, maybe not in others, but um, I recently I've found it extraordinarily off-putting. So for instance, systemic racism. Okay, so I, my analysis, my historical analysis is very clearly that, <laughs> that systemic racism does currently exist and previously existed. I also think it's true that Western, in quote, civilization is not uniquely systemically racist. Um, so it's a feature, potentially a feature of civilization in general. And there's a whole conversation to be had there, you know, about how we define that and how we think about that. and you know, like maybe civilization not being the only way to operate society, but I don't want to get too sunk in that. Right now, what I'm seeing is sort of like driving towards a specific concrete present moment thing, which has really been bothering me. And I've been trying to think of how to engage with, you know, somebody I know in the permaculture regenerative ag community, you know, Joel Salatin, who's, I don't know if you've seen these articles going around. So, mm -hmm. uh, Chris Newsom, who's a, uh, I think that's his name, uh, who's a, a black farmer doing Joel Salatin inspired rotational amazing stuff and very similar business model. Really, really hit, like killing it as a farmer, doing really great job or making it jump up and live, whatever we want to say, like doing an amazing job. Um, basically um, set, said to Mother Earth News that he would not write a column for Mother Earth News if Joel Salatin was still writing a column because he feels like Joel Salatin is racist. Um, because Joel Salatin has said publicly and in private letters, I don't believe in systemic racism. And that's mm -hmm. basically the crux of the argument, mm -hmm. <laughs> really, when it comes down to it. I mean, Joel is also, he's a good old boy, but I know him. My experience of him is, you know, if he met various people of color and various white people, like one-on-one, -on -one, he would be a, a, a polite, like he would invite you over to dinner. He would be, he would, you know. So, so he's not like a bigot, <laughs> I, I think. I think it's safe to say he's not a bigot. Right. He doesn't necessarily have the, um, the appropriate, uh, for the moment, dogma of systemic racism and all these other things. He's not woke, he's not enlightened in that way. In fact, he's arguing for these more like traditional capital L liberal, like we have a system in place, you know, like, you know, and I just have to wonder, 
I was a little, I, I was a little off put by, by Joel kind of getting, I, I just don't see what the purpose of this, like canceling people, even if I disagree with them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and I'm just yeah, curious how that lands to you. It feels to me like it's part of what I'm scared of. That's actually going to get Trump reelected and it's going to, it's going to create all this reaction because you can't force ideology down people's throats. They don't yeah. want it. So anyway, yeah. I'm just curious. I, I think this is, no, this is really the crux of, of so many issues coming together simultaneously, right? And the, the place I would start is like, look, we, we, when I say uh, history matters and having a structural analysis, it, it's, it's basically this, like, um, there's nothing, there's no issue that we are dealing with that is not outside the, the, the consequences of a, a, a neoliberal capitalist operating system. And, and we have to acknowledge that, right? So climate change is not an externality of capitalism. It's the direct result. It is the logical outcome of this set of rules that we've created. And the same is true with institutional racism. Uh, essentially, capitalism is a form of white supremacy because white people had a 500-year head start on the monopolization of capital and through slavery, genocide, imperialism, etc. So it, it's, it's sort of baked into the root of, of the system. And now with that comes this cultural power, right? And the, the, the cultural power is that the white body is the default body and the standard by which all things are measured. And so all of those things uh, lead to this, this moment where uh, if we don't acknowledge the historical trauma, we're actually just gonna perpetuate this uh, kind of cancel culture. Right, and, and what's interesting is like, I, I recently witnessed a debate discussion between two friends, allies, uh, one a black woman and one uh, a white man. And as soon as the white man said, look, I acknowledge capitalism is a form of white supremacy. And literally the conversation just completely shifted immediately because all of a sudden this woman realized that this person understands the structural plight of her people and a dialogue could just open. And there was um, this kind of bridge building empathy that you know, in the invisible realms just kind of happened. And, and so I, I think what's tough about a situation like this, uh, I don't know, uh, Joel, uh, but listen, you're, you're, it's not your position to say if uh, structural racism exists or not, especially as a white man because you don't feel it, <laughs> you know, like you're in some ways, his point, his, his comments are irrelevant. Like who is he to say how other people are affected by a system that is inherently invisible to him because it's worked so well. Right. And uh, you know, for example, uh, white people are actually the most segregated uh, population in the U S it's self segregation, right? Like most white people live their entire lives, not really, engaging with people of other color because they live in their suburbs and they go to their jobs and you know et cetera et cetera so yeah. it's, it's really hard to see the racial waters in which we're swimming and so i think the, i look at a situation like this and i say well issue one is like joel salatin or whatever your name is like don't be commenting on structural racism as somebody who is on the top of the racialized hierarchy and that racialized hierarchy exists now is the solution to that that um we have more black people in boardrooms or have equal access to, you know, 
the the the, the means of production that also feels like a crazy idea to me like why, why if if racism is a byproduct of capitalism but somehow well, that's the thing is that you're just reversing you're just sort of saying well we're going to maintain the same power structure exactly. and we're just going to replace the people there and they'll perpetuate their version of things exactly exactly and and then and then so it comes to this idea of look uh, has human society always been racist? Sure, but in different ways. And those different ways matter. Has there always been hierarchy? Well, the, the sort of anthropological, archaeological view is like, as soon as we started sedentary lifestyles uh, and Neolithic revolution happened, there's always been hierarchy. Has that hierarchy been racialized? Uh, there's not clear evidence that that is necessarily yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, my opinion would be no. That, yeah. That, that up until, that the birth of racialized hierarchy coincides, in fact, with what we would consider capitalism. Yeah, yeah. That's my, yeah. That's my historical understanding of... Yeah, yeah, and, that's, and that's, that, that's, yeah, and that's probably right. And what's interesting, too, like, uh, if you read some of the work of, like, John A. Powell, for example, at, at Berkeley, he runs the Institute for Othering and Belonging. Um, might go the other way around, but uh, he talks about the invention of whiteness, that, that actually even within the US, there wasn't a strong uh, sort of racialized hierarchy till uh, th there started to be essentially organized class-based action. Yeah, yeah. Totally. No, it was, it, no, no the, the history there, I, I, I haven't, I'm not sure if I've read his work, but the history there is, it, feels pretty clear that there's there's clear clear documented uh the the birth of racism in in north america it, you know it happened within the historical record and it's documented and it it wasn't just like people bringing it in you know there was an awful lot of solidarity and connection between yeah black s slaves or maroons and you know native american indian populations and indentured Irish people and, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of, I mean, it's a whole thing happening there that was, that that history is like beautiful and, and full of grief and mostly swept under the rug. And we, like, we just sort of rather forget about <laughs> all of that. Um, you know, and, 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 then, and then there's this issue of like, this comes to the root of cancel culture, right? Which is like, well, what is our response to this? racialized hierarchy okay if, if somebody joel whoever makes a comment based on ignorance which is essentially what his comment is um wouldn't it be better as an ally in that space to just call that person up and have a dialogue with them and just say well you know that's i understand your position and here's a, a kind of historical structural take on why we're in this current situation and and how do you want to show up as an ally and related to that is also like the spiritual implications of what's happening, you know, and th this is not often talked about, but it's like, uh, you know, if we believe that we've incarnated into a white body or a brown body or what have you, uh, as part of our karmic work in this period, understanding the, the historical antecedents that have led us to this moment, hmm. we would approach the issue of race in a very different way than to just think about it as um, you are a beneficiary or a victim, which is a kind of binary old school approach to matters of race. Because something deeper is happening here. 
And it also implies that actually what we need is a process of grief and reconciliation and mm. acknowledgement of uh, you know, these historical things uh, rather than cancel culture, which feels yeah. like the lowest common denominator kind of reactive approach to, to the moment. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that really resonates with me. My first reaction to, to all of this going down, and I mean, I guess this, whenever we release this podcast, this will be my first sort of like in quotes public, although it's buried deep in a podcast. It's not like I'm tweeting things at people or something, but just processing it all. My first reaction was like, man, I wish that Chris and myself or other people you know, I mean, myself as a, as a white man, like I can talk to Joel and be like, Joel, dude, <laughs> I think you might be like missing some stuff. You know, Chris as a black man could be like, hey, you know, I don't know that this is yours to comment about however it goes. But the only way that those sorts of challenging conversations happen is when they're held in relationship. You have to trust each other enough to give that kind of, to receive, to give, to have that depth of like a process whereby someone reflects of their own will, reflects on their, their long held assumptions and beliefs and everything that's happened in their life. And they say, wow, actually there's something else going on here. And I, that's just a, such a deep process. It feels like it's counterproductive to attack, to do it in a, a public shaming attack way, which, you know, may have been a way of dealing with this stuff if you were in a tribe of 20 people at a certain point when somebody still keeps doing things after the millionth time and the grandmas get their shame out and they like go after you. And like, yeah, that's a part of humanity that I think is important and leads to atonement. But I don't think it works very well in a public forum over social media blogs and you know sort of like and yeah i just i just don't think it's a good it's just strategic it's just bad strategy basically <laughs> you know, yeah, know and and like do do we want a culture where our potential allies are in shame and guilt and you know afraid to speak and you know it's like what kind of culture are we creating as whatever you know progressive movements the permaculture movement uh, among anarchists it's like as soon as you create an environment where where people um feel afraid or intimidated our creativity is not going to flourish our ingenuity is not going to flourish yeah. we're going to start creating these these sort of um like the, we have to make the post-capitalist future so extraordinary and desirable that it becomes a magnetic force and mm. people start wanting to live these other ways and if we're not doing that then we're just replicating the hierarchy and the oppression in in new ways well it's just a it's just it is what it's being you know i think what what strikes me is i think a lot of the you know sort of reactionary right alt-right sort of trumpian universe that i, I feel like what just happened is jo joel salton just got polarized into that group whether he wanted to be or not it just like happened because that's who's going to come to his defense right <laughs> those are all the people that are going to be like yeah that's a bunch of bullshit and then they'll have their little echo chamber and they won't hear anything after that it's just like it just happened so wh where was i going with that I, uh 
uh, I, I sort of forget where my train of thought was going. It just, the polarization there is, ah, that's where I was going. That alt-right, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The, the you know, fragile, white, whatever, however we want to describe it, the, like people, there are, you know, it is also important to understand that whiteness isn't the, the, the benefits that come from being born white in the United States or other Western societies don't actually get you out of suffering or being able to have a legitimate victim story. <laughs> and so when it becomes a, you know, then it becomes a tug of war and people in their own experience can be like, wait, you're telling me I don't have right to like, you know, acknowledge my suffering and what the shit that happened to me and my ancestors and yours trumps mine. I know in my own personal experience that I feel it in my heart. I can see the family traumas, you know, like those are concrete things. I don't know your experience. I only know mine. Right. It's just, it's just a really, I think what you're inviting us to consider is really important, which is if, if there's going to be movement here, it has to be, sort of like a different way of um, resolving, of, of sort of, per it's sort of like, in a way, this is an interesting thought, the, the right, in quotes, always seems to emphasize personal accountability over collective action. And I think what I'm hearing from you is, what we need to be personally, we need to, you, like, we need to all be personally accountable for healing lineage trauma and that's going to include approaching reparations that we as individuals may not have been responsible for, but as individuals, we can take accountability for. And like, and you know, so there's something there. There's some switch of narrative that may be a guide. I'm not sure. Yeah, and, and uh, also to say that this, uh, sorry, is it cutting out for a second? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, yeah. I just I hear the cicadas as well. It's quite nice. Uh, yeah, I got a little choppy for a second, but okay. Um, just say that this 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 point about uh, uh, competing oppressions is really important, right? Because we don't want to get into a place where we are competing in the hierarchy of oppression. You know, whose trauma was worse, and and uh, you know, of course. The Oppression Olympics, uh, I've heard it derisively referred to by people who think that it's all a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> yeah, but, and, so, and here's the thing, right, uh, where this, this sort of uh, intersection between individual responsibility and, and collective action comes. It's in, in some ways incumbent on white people to acknowledge that all of the oppressions they've had would be even more difficult if they were incarnated in a black body in, in late stage capitalism. You know, that, that's, it, it would just be another institutional, structural uh, blockage that would, be, that would make your life more difficult. I, I, would, I would push and, back on that a little bit. I, I would push that back on that a little bit because I think, I, I, I think there are unique, um, unique cultural oppression elements, especially around white men that have that have a, a, an interesting set, you know, if, if you look at the statistics, the most likely, by a long shot, the most likely demographic to commit suicide it are, you know, middle-aged white men. And 
I think that that is a pretty clear indicator that there's a, a lot of suffering going on that um, that's unique, that, that has its own, that has to do with disconnection and atomization and sort of yeah. being the yeah. most sort of like centered out, like just like divided from everyone else in, in a way that, and that there's consequences to that. So it's sort of like, wait, wait, again, so what's I, interesting, yeah. anyway. wait, what's, what, what's interesting is the, these things are interconnected though, right? Yeah. And so look, if you're, if you're a single white woman, uh, living in urban poverty, your life is difficult. There's no doubt about that. Now, if you added being black to that, your life would be even more difficult in this. Well, I guess context. what I'm trying to invite is it would be, and this is something, this is, and, and maybe this is sort of going to be considered in poor taste by many people, what have you, but that's okay. I'll, I'll just go ahead and share it anyway. I guess I have the experience of, yes, there are many things that would be much more difficult in this sort of like bureaucratic apparatus of the world. However, if you're a black woman in the inner city, living in urban, you know, living below the poverty line versus a white woman in the same way, the black woman for various reasons may actually have more, a more intact community. Yes, yes. But, and the, but and the white woman may have a less intact community. For sure, and, for sure. Uh, and um, so that's one, that's, that's just, that's where I'm thinking of it, actually. It's like the things that have, there, there's actually like a pride and intactness and a power and a beauty and, you know, a rhythm and soul that are these amazing forms of wealth that, um, that the, the, the beneficiaries in the, you know, capital system and, you know, we can sort of, the, the the white the the white and the sort of on the top of this <laughs> pyramid have lost or it has been alienated from them and that's so the, so been so liquidated the, so and it was turned so, so, into but, some in quotes privilege. <laughs> so, so 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 this is the point I'm trying to make though, which is which is actually the the uh, yes there's a unique uh, historical set of. Uh, uh, oppressions that each culture, class, race, gender hold. Now, the, the, you know, the idea of intersectionality initially came from, from a legal scholar, right? Yeah. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, which is that, that the, the more of these intersectionalities you hold, the amplification of your oppression is, is uh, increased from a structural legal, how the system treats you, how yeah, the economic- the, bureau the bureaucracy, the bureauc it's how the bureaucracy uh, just sort of like they're and they're minute and it's by gradations and they're like right. it's it's little micro prejudices combined with historical laws and all this stuff right. sort of shades to create yeah no i i so, get so, it uh, I, but this is this yeah. is the point i'm trying to make is that the the healing though of you know part of the reason uh the the sort of um the, this middle-aged white category that we're talking about that has high levels of of suicide etc um is is depressed and is has this ennui and this disconnect etc part of their healing is actually bound up in the acknowledgement of the other the others oppression you know like that's that's actually what i try to say is like when we when when white people acknowledge that there has been a system of and and a sort of a state system and apparatus that has done that you actually open the bridge 
to deeper healing, mm. the dialogue. To, and, and actually what is keeping us apart is uh, a, a system that requires us to be atomized, to compete with each other. And if we're going to transcend the sort of zero-sum logic that is the, the core, the source code of, of, of neoliberalism and, and late-stage capitalism, both our all sides healing, just like all oppression is connected, all healing is connected in that sense. And our meaning is actually going to come from reconnecting with the historical trauma that our ancestors created. Like in some ways, that's where both the, the redemption and the potential for meaning can come from. Yeah. We, and we're at that very messy early stage of, a, you know, a teenager or an adolescent trying to grapple with um, a problem that's going to take a lifetime to, to get to maturity with. And so yeah. the, this cancel culture is, is almost, a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a juvenile impulse around an issue that is going to require all of our collective healing. Yeah. No, I think that's well, well put. And I, are you at all familiar with, um, with uh, Jim Rutt? Have you been? No. Like the game B in quotes, game B movement? No, no. Is this like Jordan Hall? Is this? Jordan Hall is part of the part of that world yeah, yeah part of yeah. this world and uh yeah. you know white forget. intellectual rationalist sense making people yeah. right yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah yeah very sort of naive materialist rationalist uh, approach that has arrived at a similar set of conclusions although i would argue is really really resistant to hack to owning yeah, to, to having any sort of conversation about structural oppression or, you know, um, lineages of trauma or like bringing, like using the, the reality of history as a, as a foundation to uh, approach the present moment. They're very, very reactive, you know, um, even more so than I witnessed like the integral movement kind of has a reaction to the, you know, the green meme and the mean green meme and, and all of this. It's maybe even another, it's a similar though. I, and, and maybe that kind of spiral dynamics framework is actually kind of useful in this, at least for me and kind of yeah. understanding what, what, what's happening. But yeah, that's, that's the group. That's the community. I've been just sort of like had my ear to the ground, listening to them, you know, talk about, you know, creation of proto bees, which are basically like what Brave Earth is doing. That is to say communities that are trying to work on um, sort of interfacing with the game A in quotes world um, while building a new way of being that is what they would call meta stable, <laughs> which I think they mean sort of having some sustainable homeostasis with planetary right. systems. Um, right. Yeah, it, anyway, it's it's interesting. It's, it's like it's a cousin. It's sort of a cousin <laughs> that I've recently come across. And yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's interesting, right? Because this, this this is really the idea of of, of, of post-capitalism, right? And yeah. you know, social movements, especially in the global south, like the, the Zapatistas and others have been living this and saying this for like 30, 40 years, right? If not longer. And and um, when, when this sort of, you know, game theorist 
style, you know, Santa Fe Institute people yep. come those, and those are the ones. Jim Rupp was the director of Santa Fe Institute. Okay, okay, yeah. It's it, well, it, it's it's it, you know, it's it, it's kind of like uh, another form of uh, of uh, colonization, right? Like just like academics did with with anthropology. You know, it's sort of they there's an imposition of for example james lovelock comes up with gaia theory and it's heralded right and it's like indigenous people have been saying this shit for like since the beginning of time you know time immemorial that the earth is a living system uh and uh the the, the kind of and, and you look and i also have nothing against it it's like there's an ecosystem approach to this. And if that's gonna help some people understand that we have to build post-capitalist infrastructure before collapse, great. But the, the claim that they somehow have a monopoly on these ideas, I just find a bit laughable, you know? Well, I don't know if they would claim that. I actually think, you know, at least Jim, Jim I really like Jim's, um, Jim is another like old cantankerous white guy. You know, I'm a white guy, so I can like, I can like hang with that that culture. I kind of like get it. It every once in a while I get triggered, but not very often. And one of the things he says is he talks a lot about epistemic humility, which I think could be our unifying. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's our unifying ethos. Mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. that we could all get behind, it. and and that would be the savior of the sort of from naive rationalism. Um, actually, is if. But yeah, I mean, th there is a really, there's a really interesting dynamic around, you know, colonization. There's also a, a lot of things that I think are, you know, you know, potentially problematic about, for instance, sort of the way that decolonization is approached, in quotes, as a kind of like a, a theoretical underpinnings of a particular branch of a movement. Um, which I think resonate very strongly and maybe the same as what we were just unpacking around cancel culture, where it's right. like, if you're, yeah, it, it, and, and that's where a lot of it tends to go. It isn't to say, you know, like there's, there's certain things that I, I think are just so solid that they actually can even be integrated into a completely empiricist perspective. <laughs> and yeah. that's where like, we, why argue you want to, yeah come at it from an empiricist perspective, that's great. I'll come at it from a karmic perspective and, you know, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I, the, the only, the, the question that comes into mind, right, is the question of power, right? And, and what, what's often happened with, with uh, uh, rationalism or monotheism or, you know, any form of sort of uh, epistemic knowing is that that then gets imposed into the structure of the system, right? And there, there's a way. And what, what I like about this idea of epistemic humility, it, it's sort of um, what many indigenous communities called other ways of knowing and being. Yeah. You know, it's to just really honor that there's a, a, a plurality of approaches, that there is no objective reality. You know, how could there be an objective reality? Because we are subjective beings who are interpreting that reality. And, you know, you said earlier about... Um, uh, relationships there's this great line from david abram in in the spell of the sensuous where he says there, there is no objective truth there is only the quality of relationships yeah well, there is no objective truth there's only the quality of relationships you know and, and i think there's some beautiful i have a sense of clarity that emerge emerges around my sort of 
you know, somewhere between pop science and pop mystic, <laughs> and maybe a little bit further than that, since I have my life experience and my ways of knowing, but, you know, not to overinflate my, my ability to make claims. There is something about sort of interbeing and intersubjective reality generation yeah. that, that, and, and the future that's asking us to serve her becoming mm-hmm. that is somehow, as you were saying earlier, very beautifully, magnetizing people to serve and transform themselves into a new way, call it post-capitalism, call it what we will. And, and you know, the Joel Salatins and the Jim Rutts of the world and the Gregory Landways and the Alnor Latas and the, um, the folks in the Zapatistas in Chiapas and the community at Brave Earth. And there's all these people and they have radically different stories about how they came to be and how they generate their knowing and their truth. And, and yet, somehow, we are actually all um, creating a kind of a, a, a rem- in, in this post-truth confusing meme war social media shit show that's taking place, even though there's people who are wildly diverse and have completely apparently oppositional ideologies even, people are saying basically the same thing and doing basically the same thing all around the world in this really emergent, beautiful way. And that's, I think, worth just sort of calling out and celebrating and, and being curious and sort of, wow, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and in some ways, like the, the distrust of, of traditional power elites and experts and, you know, th- that is a starting place. And some people take that to the, you know... The, the sort of, pandemic conspiracy theory. Yeah, like. yeah. And, and, uh, and, and others take it to be like, okay, well, actually, it's incumbent on us to build that reality. Generate knowledge. We need yeah. to generate, or what, from, a, from that materialistic perspective, great. If you're going to do that, then everybody needs to co-create our way of knowing and right. super let's do it yeah 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 and 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 i think you know partly this is the moment where we're 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 saying well even this idea of decolonization it's it's actually a deeply spiritual act mm. you know it, it's a it's a a understanding the the oxygen that we're breathing you know i.e neoliberalism, late stage capitalism, the Kali Yuga, whatever you want to call it, really being a student of our culture to understand the, the, the circumstance we find ourselves in as a starting place. And then also, you know, these things are discursive. It's not inner work, outer work. It's happening in our own bodies. And so finding that the somatic rewiring that's also required for, for decolonization to happen. And then seeing that reflected in alternatives and rules and systems that we co-create and i think that's in some ways it's what we all want right and we the 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 hard part is that uh you know privileges can be a constraint it can it It always is yeah no i mean boundary boundaries make for the for life and beauty and art the best poetry the best stories um, 
yeah, limit, limitlessness is, is the greatest tyranny. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's, it's also non-dual, right? Because it's, it's also through the boundary dissolving, you can then decide how to proceed with the limitations that have been imposed on you. Culturally, yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. I have, well, I have, a, I have a sort of provocative question without an answer. So this in decolonization as a word, mm -hmm. my albeit rational empiricist way of knowing and sort of story of life and genesis of life and, you know, how we come to be here includes a story of the colonization of single cell organisms by mitochondria uh, and other and many other in a long lineage of life um, becoming colonization of gut gut um, fauna microflora um, colonization of new species in into new ecosystems evolution and, and whatnot and I I sometimes am troubled by the simple decolonization, the D in front of that, um, because it feels as though it's very resonant with things that are historically, have, we have a history of and can source uh, knowing from that have happened in the past in which we're trying to remove a particular part of ourselves or a population and take it out, <laughs> you know, and it, and it kind of happens with um, invasive species in quotes all the time where people are trying to rip out or spray with, you know, people spray chemicals on invasive species to, to get them out, which is kind of crazy to me. I mean, I find it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there's something there, which I find like, Oh, I have a hard time. I get so, in fact, I get so alarmed that sometimes I have a hard time like leaning in and listening past a right. certain point. I, I, think, I, I, the, I think it's more consciousness of colonization. So we don't replicate the same hierarchies and impositions. And uh, because you're right, like colonization is an entangled, messy process, as, uh, as is, you know, e even the concept of genocide. Human beings are here because we we genocided uh, hominids, you know our our other hominids, of, yeah, a bunch of other hominids, you know, and and uh, and also uh, other mammals as well to 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 get here to survive, right? And so it, it's like all of these. To, English is a problematic language, right? It's a binary oppositional language at its core, and yeah. so decolonization is. Um, uh, it's an inelegant, messy word. But it is an important placeholder. And, and, and when yeah. you to remind us and to anchor us in, in an understanding of how we're actually going to be able to face who we are and how we came to be here in order to transform and heal, it's... it's yeah, it's, and, that, and that's how... And, and You know, look, the, the, we're not there as a culture in that conversation. There's a lot of anger and resent and you which know, is all understandable just to be clear i mean yeah, I, of course I, of course but but also the place where we do need to get to is to to start going beyond the zero sum uh because it is an it is actually another form of colonization it is the the imposition of uh of competition and violence 
yeah. amongst us. And until the zero we get sumness, to... the, the, what you're saying is that the, 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 the zero sum game itself is maybe even at essence, that's, that is sort of like the colonization process. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to keep us here. And, 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 and I'm not saying that the, the anger is not righteous uh, and, and, you know, doesn't have moral desert and all of those things, but um, we also have to decide. But it won't get us anywhere. I mean, it, it, how, yeah. it can be righteous. Be it can be righteous. It can even in certain moments be healthy as expression. It could create beauty. It could create, grief but um but yeah and and in the short term you know maybe what it does is it it, it rebalances power at a structural institutional level and in that sense it'll serve its purpose and we're still gonna be at this crossroads in 20 years of of uh how do we build a society that's based on our mutual co-evolution and healing and until we crack that it doesn't matter who's in power how many people do you think, I mean, I guess what's the role in your mind of these sorts of smaller, you know, not isolationist, but maybe more isolated um, experiments in creating, you know, uh, non-zero sum um, living and livelihood experiments. What's the role of, of that and relationship of that to the sort of like larger societal structural evolution that mm -hmm. needs to take place. Well, see, th this question then is is bound up with what do we think is going to happen, right? And yeah. I, I don't like look just three percent growth a year in our current system, which is re required to you know not keep us keep us out of a whatever recession, stagflation. That that's a doubling of the economy every twenty years. And I don't see another doubling of this economy. You know, we've already crossed four of the nine planetary boundaries. Unless it's, unless it's as the techno-utopians sort of say, unless it starts doubling in on itself into sort of like the digital world and, and somehow the, the energy required in order to facilitate that is within the boundaries of what's possible. Yeah, it feels very unlikely. I, you know, for every technological solution, there's another ten problems that are imposed on the material world, right? Like just the the, the servers the internet is on is like twelve percent of global energy output or something like that. It's like if if we're looking at where we are now, I don't see Western civilization as we know it surviving the next twenty years. And in that sense, the alternative communities and the experiments are really important not just as Art. cultural crystals of possibility, but yeah, they, they are in some ways also maybe where, uh, you know, who, look, where, where I see the possibility of human survival is in um, communities with deep indigenous knowledge and uh, ancestral connection and symbiosis with the natural world. And that can maybe be acquired in one or two generations to a certain extent, um, through an alternative community that becomes food sovereign and uh, by regionally self-sufficient, et cetera. Um, and it's probably those communities and indigenous peoples that will survive the, the next ice age and the next collapse and the next, you know, name the catastrophe. Um, Maybe, or there'll be the peasants, you know, and, and I guess they would survive if they were the peasants. I mean, there's so many different variables there that are scary to yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I know I, I recently had this this debate with um, if you know Helena Norberg Hodge, she wrote Local Futures and uh, and Charles Eisenstein, and they they both had this sort of pessimistic worldview um, that that somehow the hierarchy will maintain post collapse, right? And we'll be living in these bubbles and working for one percenters. And I, I just find that I, I don't know. I find it an unlikely scenario. Um, I feel like right now hierarchy is propagated on, on debt-based capital and really like who's going to be flying people's private planes and guarding their gilded gates and people who have food knowledge and systems knowledge and have a relationship to a living planet um, are, are going to be valued allies and, and who's going to be for sale, you know, the, the day the dollar dies. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's so much there to unpack, I, 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 you know, does the dollar die or does the dollar transform? You know, do we, yeah. you know, um, some unit of currency will likely survive. There's always been something um, that offers some unit of account or symbolic exchange medium. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. But we've never had such a globalized, unresilient, interconnected system, right? And I don't, so I'm not, I, I, I'm not necessarily arguing with you, but I do wonder, I mean, hierarchy, learning to do hierarchy well, I mean, I guess I'm very much of the camp, uh, prepare for the worst, hope for the best, and in this case, the best is most certainly not collapse. Because in my mind, systemic, like full-on systemic collapse does indeed recapitulate and replicate and calcify human hierarchy in its worst forms, in the worst, worst and most terrible forms. And the, the, the opportunity we have is to try to transform our approach to hierarchy and realign it with status for common good and ecological health and um, healing and, you know, th these sorts of values that are important for our species right now. Um, and I don't think we would get there if we actually just like go through a systems collapse. Like I, I remember reading. No. Uh, we, it's not that we, anyone wants that. It's just the trajectory we're on. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems to be for sure. It's definitely, that's definitely a scary thought. Right. I mean, I remember reading something, um, like one of these public, publicly available Department of Defense briefs in which they ran a like game scenario about what would happen if the United States uh, power grid went down for two weeks and there was no power for two weeks, what would happen? And uh, the 80%, they were, they, their projections were 80% of people in the United States in two weeks would die. Yeah, which is yeah, is, is, and just think like and how fragile know. is that? Because how fragile is you know it is it is very fragile, and so I don't I mean I don't necessarily disagree. Although miraculously there is this emergent system which appears precarious and appears to always be stumbling and like on the edge of collapse, and yet it sort of sort of like keeps evolving and emerging and moving on in some precarious way. So it's very hard. 
it's very hard for me at least to pretend I can make any predictions about it. No, no, I don't think we can. Yeah, it's like Frankenstein with 40 bullets in him and it, you know, capitalism just keeps on going. It's, it doesn't matter how many 2008s you have, but, but look, just the last IPCC report has like 40 plus feedback loops, right? Um, just one of which is the Siberian ice sheet. It holds 12 times more carbon in the form of methane since we've released, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We've already heated up the planet a degree. We've gone from, you know, 250 to, to 440 parts per million. So 12 times that. And the... the, the yeah, that's... that's it's just we have no idea we have no idea right 20 meters sea level rises and 30 40 percent of all plant and animal life all biodiversity being lost it's like we, we have no idea what's coming and even this sort of covid dry run moment like we are being prepared for something uh bigger than we can we can understand and 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 i don't think this is just simply uh another cycle of uh of, of extinction i i think there is a um, a sort of a spiritual overlay to what's happening and why it's happening. Mm -hmm. So you sort of have a mythopoetic kind of like orient, like orienting yourself and your your loved ones and sort of all of us on this sort of the, there's a moment in time and it's transformational and and maybe there's some tautology involved. Like there's a there's something that we're being invited to become that, you know, that, um, that if you listen closely enough, you might even hear a whisper of what it is. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and this is where I think decolonization and deprogramming comes in. You know, that, that actually the, 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 the practice of transcending the, the, our socialized understanding and relationship with a living planet and a living universe is, feels like the necessary skill set to navigate ambiguity, chaos, breakdown, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and, you know, do I have a, a sort of rationalist axiomatic logic to how I got there? No. <laughs> you know, I can't prove that to you, right? It's just uh, a sense, you know, and, and when you study the ancient scriptures of India, for example, like the Vedic tradition, or a lot of the indigenous prophecies sort of also share this mythopoetic uh, understanding of, of what this moment is. Yeah. Well, so how do you... How do you, in your mind, think about science mm -hmm. in, in this sort of, in your, and how, how does science fit into your worldview mm -hmm. as a way of That's knowing a or, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I studied philosophy of science in, in, in grad school. And so I, I, I've always seen science as uh, the floor of human understanding, as opposed to the ceiling mm -hmm. of human understanding mm -hmm. that, that, um, can we temporarily achieve an, uh, a shared objective? I wouldn't even say objective, a consensus understanding. Intersubjective consensus. Yeah, an intersubjective consensus on certain aspects, for sure. And science plays an important role in that. Um, you know, uh, but they need to be upgradable. Like even in standard 
scientific, like decent sci- a decent understanding of the philosophy of science leads one to understand that intersubjective consensus needs to be malleable and upgradable. Otherwise, exactly. it's not science. Exactly. And, and as soon as we try to impose the belief that there, there can be an objective worldview, we, we get into scientism, right? And the 100 years ago, we believed that the universe was a billion years old. And now we, we currently understand it to be 4.5 or 4.6 billion years old. In order for good science to be good science, it has to approach with epistemic, you know, epistemic humility. Yeah. To, to bring back that phrase. Um, and I, I don't ever believe that there will be, you know, that, that our human understanding will be all encompassing. That it science will be, will yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, God, because that's the teleology of a lot yeah. of scientific belief. Yeah. Yep. Right. Well, but that's sort of like what myth do you choose and what's the consequences of the myth? Yeah. So if, exactly if the myth is that this is a never ending cycle and process that we're on and time is nonlinear and looped and, you know, and we're sort of in a, a, a constant intersubjective meaning making and reality creating process. Um, that's very different from there's a beginning and an end and, right. and, if we're good enough, we can bring the end about sooner <laughs> yeah. or something, yeah. which is yeah. my rough interpretation of kind of the, the enlightenment. where scientism and sort of the eschatology kind of meet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and of course, science, the Western scientific tradition has been deeply informed by both Christianity and capitalism. You know, they are part of the same complex. Yeah. And so I, I'm more in the, the kind of Karen Barad school, this you know, post-humanist school, this understanding that you, you can't separate ontology and epistemology, nor can you separate those from ethics. So let know. me move back into you know, this, this growth critique. So if, if, this is something I think about a lot. If, if we're proposing, I don't know how we, what we would name this, but we're proposing sort of a dynamic without beginning and without end approach to meaning making and um, sense making and um, co-creation of reality. Um, To me, there is potential to, to sort of like harmonize that with an economic system if we point growth into a direction of inner knowing and beauty and life instead of sort of brute extractive um, production or how whatever we want to call it um, I, I I'm curious how that lands with you. And if that seems crazy or possible or naive or silly or what. <laughs> yeah, it, it's basically rethinking the idea of growth to be something else, right? Because right now we have a very crass measure of that, which is essentially material throughput measured by, by GDP. That's, that's the growth economy we're in. And um, 
that is going to, we know where that's going to lead us, right? It's, it's, it's going in one direction very quickly towards a, towards a brick wall. Um, and the, the, the possibility exists that we can uh, transform that desire for quote unquote progress into something else. But I, I think that also requires a, a type of um, humility and a type of dialogue with the living planet mm. that uh, we're, we're not like, it's our best thinking that's got us here. So we, we could think through another system and another ism and, and I feel like it will lead us in the same direction. It, in some ways, I feel like what we're being called to do is um, humble ourselves to the natural world and start to ask, how do we be in service to life? And then uh, a life-centric economics, uh, you know, more of a bionomics or something will, will emerge, you know, and, and I don't have the answer to what that is, but um, it will be a sort of post-growth logic inherently. Or it will be a different, I guess what I'm proposing is, is growth is inherent to life, in fact. And so it will be a different type of growth. Right. It is not uh, attached to the linear mechanistic, you know, extraction and production of goods and services. It, it will be a growth of, of photosynthetic edge and biodiversity yeah. and yeah. of novelty and like the Terrence McKenna, McKenna yeah. sort of perspective and, and inner growth and healing and art and, you know, care and, and well-being, well-being and, and mutual support and generosity and compassion and altruism and all of these um, sort of intrinsic values that actually give our life more meaning. And the social science on this is, is clear. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And yeah. So, so you know, and, and there's such, that's such an exciting, to me, that's such an exciting kind of, uh, frontier and I don't use that word lightly you know um, I use that word knowing all of its baggage in a way because I think I have the sense and maybe maybe I'm wrong and there's all sorts of I have all sorts of self-awareness around around sort of like a, a crux here that I kind of might be in a hall of mirrors myself but I have the sense that we need to, it sort of loops back to this like cancel culture and how do we, you know, invite those of us, those curmudgeonly members of our communities that might want to argue about systemic racism or whatever in, and how do we, how do we invite them in to dinner and have them leave transformed? There still needs to be, and this is maybe talking about like, in the beginning, you were talking about the left as well, just like pinning this to a couple places in our conversation and how it's like, man, if we can't have fun, if there isn't hope, if this is just a fight because everything sucks, if there's no hope, if there's no beauty, if there's no excitement, if there's no exploration, if there's no blue sky opportunity where you're elated about a new love or a, a new landscape you're exploring or a, a new opportunity, we're just, we won't go anywhere. And so, yeah that new horizon um, and, and painting that picture and making that invitation, I just feel like is, is so essential to, um, to bringing enough people to a sort of about face <laughs> and start mm -hmm. kind mm -hmm. of like falling in love with a different direction and making different assumptions. Yeah. 
And yeah, you know, Carl Jung used to say, uh, every generation has its spirit project, mm. that, where, where the sort of collective will is, is directed. And, and in, in some way, ours is emerging. Uh, and it's, it's sort of emerging through very unfortunate circumstances, you know, like you and I or our children or perhaps our children's children may be the last human beings left. Could be. and, and, uh, you know, and that's in some ways the, uh, yeah, you could see that as, as uh, uh, humans I, apparently I, I, need crisis in order to yeah, transform. It's yeah, it's it, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like in some ways that's our, that's the marching orders and, and the, the manner by which we approach matters, you know? And so mm -hmm. if it's not done through joy and pleasure and uh, relationality, and liminality and uh, conviviality. Yeah, then then it, I, I don't even think our subconscious will allow us to ratify, you know, the, the possibility of those other things happening, mm. because all of this is bound up together. You know, the the kind of misery that exists right now is the consequences of a set of decisions and rules and structures that uh, we were born into. And if we're going to create a new context for human beings to flourish, it's going to have to look very different to this existing system yeah well so um in a in a extraordinarily sharp uh right turn in the conversation uh, i'm so what what how are you holding coronavirus meaning making and you know what what does it look like what in brave earth you know and amongst peers just like what is it for you in this moment sort of making meaning and making decisions and thinking both how, how does this moment affect your life project and your service in the world, but also just your day to day and how you're relating to, you know, other people and, and also maybe like how you see the Ticos around you relating to it. Just like, just mm -hmm. getting a snapshot mm -hmm. of, um, you know, kind of trying to step out of the post-truth, you know, me more yeah. statistics and just get a moment of like your subjective uh, hey this is elnor sort of relating to this this phenomena <laughs> what's yeah. what's going on for you yeah i i have a a kind of i i guess um a, a worldview that comes from uh we are in dialogue with a with a benevolent being you know and that and that of course influences my 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 understanding of this i i think that that we are transgressing on the natural world and that COVID is a result of industrial capitalism and it's gonna keep on coming. Uh, and, and these viruses and pandemics and, and other things are gonna just increase in their veracity and their curiosity um, as we continue to extract in this globalized system. And the, the sort of shift in our, our way of living feels welcome and it feels necessary. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, for me personally, uh, I haven't been in one place, uh, I'll be here for a year straight uh, without, without going anywhere for more than, you know, a week or a few days or what have you. Um, I haven't done that since I was 19 and I left Vancouver, you know, as a, as, as a kid. And so I, I, I really welcome it and I love that. And it, I feel like I'm just deepening my relationship with, with the land here. Um, Definitely, as as countries go, being in a country like Costa Rica that's so dependent on um, tourism. on tourism, yeah. and a country that I don't know, maybe 60, 70, maybe even eighty percent of people live paycheck to paycheck, 
you know, there, it's not a poor country, but it's not a, like a country of a lot of savings. It's just people live within their means and they live, live by and large decently, um, but it's dependent on a flowing economy. And I think all of us are going to have to relearn that. And, you know, part of the reason we, we're doing the mutual aid work we're doing and the, the kind of bioregional resilience work is we know what's coming. And I think it's, that work is going to force us to make kin with unlikely allies. And, and that's a beautiful process. I think the, the worst possible outcome could, could have been to continue the way we were continuing, mm. you know, myself included, all of us included. Yeah. How are you, you know, sort of given the, um, sort of given your take on the consequences, you know, sort of like the, I, I guess sort of the, I don't know, almost like natural history, <laughs> the, con the ecological consequences um, and sort of determinism there where, okay, we've done this and therefore pandemics will be a thing, you know, as we continue to cut into forests and have edge and interspecies mixing and confined animals and all of these and lots of people packed into cities all of these we're sort of creating the conditions for for pandemics is what is the meaning i'm making of what you're saying um in a layer so that's like the scientific explanation and then there's a layer as well which is sort of as a as a species we have some relationship with a with a you know and are maybe even a part of a benevolent spirit of becoming and there's information here for us as individuals as a, as a as society on a societal level um how how does that influence your how you hold you know your relationship to like wearing a mask or how you relate to you know are you potting and so and distancing or are you just sort of like well come what may this is how it is or you know and there's multiple different you know, it seems to me like there's an opportunistic segmenting of our population into different sort of like ways of meeting making in which people are doing tribal identification based on, you know, how cavalier they are or how paranoid they are or what, <laughs> where they place all that. And I'm just curious how that's all landing and what, what decisions you're making in the day to day about all of this. Yeah, I, I th you know, we, we live in a community, so in the, in we're, we're now getting to a state where we're growing, you know, more and more the majority of our food. Um, so there's not a lot of interaction with the outside world. Um, and so, you know, I, if I was living in a city, uh, it would be a very different thing. But, you know, I, I feel like there's a question of do I... Do you have a pod, and obviously within your pod, within your community, you guys are doing your thing you're not gonna all yeah. of a sudden one day wake up and be like oh i can't touch you because you're in no, a exactly exactly and 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 we're lucky in that sense and and if i was living in a city uh you know it really comes down to the question of do we believe this thing is real yeah. and do we take it seriously and and you know my feeling is like um i don't think this is just uh, a sort of made up uh uh, do I think it's being handled poorly from a governmental perspective? Yeah. Do I think there's a lot of misinformation and propaganda? Totally. 
do I think it's real? I, I do. And I, I, you know, I know people have had it. And for me, it's more of a, the, the ethics of, do I want to uh, affect others and, yeah, and affect totally. other people's lives? And, and for me, it's if other people take it seriously and there's a risk to the elderly, for example, uh, or to people I work with, or then, um, you know, it's like, uh, I want to take that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take that seriously uh, as an act of solidarity and, and w whether I believe in it or not, it's sort of irrelevant to how I show up for other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that resonates precisely with how I approach it. Um, yeah, <laughs> totally. I, I think this is the, the, the kind of, um, when we were, to, this is like more of a, like the quantum ethic I was talking about, right? It's like at, at, at every moment there's, there's a kind of co-agency, there's an entanglement, there's mm. a karma, there's a, a, a context that I want to be sensitive to. And so I kind of, there's a dialogue I'm having with, with this, the environment I'm in, uh, ancestors, other people's ancestors, other people's energies, what thought form they're dealing with, is there paranoia in the room, you know? And, and, and I think we, ju we just have to take all of those omens in and metabolize them. Um, and then make a decision that is based on what is in service to the space I'm entering right now. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, well, so, you know, at this stage of the conversation, there's a couple things. I mean, I, I'd love to know more on a personal level how being so grounded and being so intimately involved in our, in our previous conversation, you were sharing just sort of the joy and sort of unexpected depth of participating in permaculture, regenerative agroforestry, food cultivation, medicine cultivation, slowing down, you know, I, I'd love, yeah, I, I just, I, I personally, you know, for almost purely selfish reasons, I, I want to just sort of like take a moment with, with, with that and the beauty that you're experiencing and what you're learning and um, kind of get to, get to experience it a little bit vicariously. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and you know this about me that I, I grew up very urban, right? And, and uh, uh, I grew up in Vancouver, and then I, I lived in in London and in New York and in in, in Cape Town. I haven't actually been in in uh, this kind of environment, and the it's taken me four years uh, of of just getting used to a very different type of 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 lifestyle. And um, and when the this pandemic happened, I, I realized you know, how little we actually need to live well if you, if you have access to land and you can grow your own food. Mm. Um, and of course, there's the, the layers of, of privilege that, uh, um, uh, yeah, that intersect with me and, yeah. and, and, and my identity. And I, and I acknowledge all of that. And, um, and it's really a, like a, a source of gratitude rather than a source of shame. And, and it, it, it fuels my my other work uh, in the sense that uh, I want to create a, a global economic operating system where everybody has access to this hmm. because uh, having relationship with place and being able to know where your food 
growth comes from and, and to be able to be in that growing process is, is it's such a deeply erotic, intimate act, mm. you know, and, and it's, um, it's also so, uh, you know, we, we spend so much of our time in cities working jobs we don't like to pay mortgages for houses we're not comfortable in, you know, to, to, to buy food that's not good for us, etc. So there's a whole treadmill uh, that we got swindled into believing that was progress, right? The, the idea of, of uh, urbanization and industrialism, etc. And I think what we're, we're realizing is that comes with a deep, deep grief. Hmm. You know, Francis Weller, I don't know if you know the work of Francis Weller, who's a, no, no. Uh, he's, he's an interesting, he's an interesting man. He's a psychoanalyst and uh, he talks about the, the five gates of grief. And that, you know, the, one of the gates is, is the obvious, you know, death and uh, uh, physical transition. And, but one of the gates of grief he talks about is being born into a culture that does not have an intact tribal system, does not have a context that can hold you. Yeah. And uh, I didn't realize how deep that grief was mm-hmm. to be born into such an impoverished culture um, till I, I could reestablish my relationship with, with, with food again. It could be in a, a space, a community where people did not have to, to leave their relational field in order to work bullshit jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's such a, it's so delicious. And, and in some way I love, your invitation that you know what how i'm taking your invitation is that we might even consider having what you're getting to experience maybe being included as a basic human right somehow Mm -hmm. people have the right if they choose to participate in the primary production of the sustenance for themselves and their family in a non-coercive manner in a way that Mm -hmm. they're not um forced in sort of the peasantry way or you know wage slavery or what what have you but that they can just participate in that if they they choose and it, it's it's an available there's an invitation should mm-hmm. you choose to participate mm-hmm. in sort of marrying you know as um as one of my teachers martin Pechtel would you know perhaps say although i wouldn't want to put words in his mouth but the the, the idea of marriage between the humans and sort of this greater than human world and being able to just participate in that. I mean, that's a whole life, life way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be, you know, I look at our education system, right. And just seeing how impoverished it is, right. Like it's entire purpose of, of, of being is to make you a good automaton in, in a growth based industrial society. Another brick that, in the wall. <laughs> that, that's, that's all it's for, right? And if we had the opportunity to actually learn the joy of growing food or knowing where our food comes from, knowing where our energy comes from, knowing where our, uh, our crap goes, you know, it's like these are such basic sort of relational tenets of any relationship to place that are, are completely, we're, we're completely dis disintermediated from you know and that's and that and we call that progress you know and so yeah there is a there is definitely a a kind of a relearning and a rewilding 
process and and more than rewilding it's a it's a reworlding as well mm. yeah remembering mm-hmm. in the you know uh, yeah rebuilding regenerating i think yeah. it's uh it's it's the work of our times yeah, yeah, and, and I'm a testament. If 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 I can do it, anybody can do it. You know, I'm a sort of uh, uh, physically inept, and uh, uh, you know, and I, I couldn't plug in uh, a VCR. You know, when those things existed, like I'm not a, a technical person at all. And and of course, these things are done in community as well. And I and I think that's the the the, the beauty of of the practice is this distributed cognition. It's like, I'm not the main person who goes out and does it, but I, I'm, that's a, a place where I'm just a volunteer and I'm in service to other people who know it better and I'm learning, right? So there's this idea of an apprenticeship. There's an idea of um, we're developing aspects of ourselves that are, are critical to our survival. And mm-hmm. what that does to you and the confidence that gives to you and the sort of uh, field it builds around you, it, it also just shifts your relationship with 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 land you know there's another really beautiful i think um invitation that you've just made to consider this sort of concept of of co-leadership or sort of polycentric leadership in community where you know you're you're a, a community leader in different ways in brave earth and have different roles and responsibilities but you're sort of identifying that hey when you're going out and tending this agroecology you know, you're not the boss and you wouldn't presume to be the boss. You're sort of saying, hey, can I help? And, you know, how? And maybe if you're lucky, why? And how can I do this better next time? And, you know, there's something I think really important about recognizing how integral it is to be able to shift roles like that in community where you can, you know, sort of have a domain in which you're, you're sort of maybe responsible for teaching others or making a decision or coordinating some action. And in other moments, that's not the role at all. The role is, is to be in service and to be humble and to listen and try to be a good supporter in the same way that you want other people to behave when they might be being coordinated by you. <laughs> which also grows much better leaders because then you start to know like being a good follower and being a good leader, there's such a dynamic relationship. Totally. It's, it's contextual, right? This is why I've always kind of rejected the idea of leadership is like what what, leadership is not just some fundamental trait that exists. It's just a, it's a contextual thing in certain contexts, you're a leader and, and in certain ways you're, you're not. And, um, this is why I think the, the kind of one dimensional man of corporate culture is so problematic. And, and also the, the, the culture of reward that comes from a financially incentivized system. When somebody has money, they're treated in a certain way. The CEO of a company basically always behaves like a CEO <laughs> in almost every context they're in, which is why they're so undeveloped, which mm-hmm. is why they're so um, psychologically and spiritually limited because not because they're they're inferior people it's just they've created a context in which they're always on top of the hierarchy and with that lack of humility you 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 can't learn and evolve and get pushed in the same way and your your um uh 
kind of muscle for service is is atrophied you can't develop it and it's that that's the most important muscle to develop yeah it's really um the road back to community and relationship is uh is is long and winding <laughs> it's uh and very important you know i think it's really it's really important so i'm curious you know as we sort of approach the top of the hour and maybe kind of start wrapping wrapping things up for this for this conversation i'm curious what what has you inspired these days what are you reading what are you listening to um what are you writing what are you um how are you participating in the <laughs> in this crazy moment um of meaning making mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um I'm, I'm technically taking a sabbatical year this year and um the, the two things I, I said I would do for sure is to take no income for the year of any kind. Um, and uh, given that I, I, I was a, a professional activist, if such a thing exists for, for, for the last 20 years, um, also not having any savings and just living in the gift and being in that practice. And of course, it makes it much easier when there's, there's no travel involved and you live in community and uh, eat from the land and et cetera. But we need money for everything, right? And it's such a it's such an interesting practice to mm -hmm. to to have that relationship with money for a year. You know, I don't think I could continue doing it for you know in perpetuity. But um, that's been a beautiful practice. And and the second thing is, uh, you know, I I built an altar to the mother and basically said I'm I'm not going to make decisions on what I'm going to do next. I'm just going to have offerings and I'm going to humble myself on a daily basis and I'm going to ask for guidance and counsel and advice and omens and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so that, that those two practices have been kind of instrumental for me on the year um, is to just go into that humility and, uh, and, and try to cultivate my ability to listen better mm. uh, and, and to be in dialogue with, with the, the more than human world and um, uh, and, and also learning to, to farm and learning to garden and you know that, that's been such a powerful practice for me and uh, a form of, of, of walking meditation uh, and then I've been I've also been taking a, a, an online course with, with Martin Shaw um, oh, yeah. awesome. on, on, on making who I, who I love and uh, I love his kind of animistic mythopoetic uh, take on things. Um, and I've been, I've been actually reading uh, the, the communiques, communiques of, uh, of Subcomandante Marcos of the Zapatistas um, in, a, in a compilation book co called uh, Our Word is Our Weapon, which is really beautiful. And uh, I just started reading The Overstory by, by Richard Brooks, this, you know. I finished that, uh, finished that a couple months ago. Uh-huh, yeah. Nice yeah, it's hard. It's hard to even uh, start because it's it, it's it's almost disorientating in some ways initially. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it starts to it's it starts to come together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in that early one third phase, but yeah, 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 yeah. Beautiful. 
Those are good things. Yeah, what a rich, um, rich moment. And um, yeah, well, I'm just enormously grateful to have gotten to spend a couple hours uh, in dialogue and conversation, Alnor. And um, yeah, likewise. Yeah, I don't know if you want to share any parting thoughts or uh, you know if you have any questions or um, curiosities. Yeah, maybe maybe you could just tell me a bit more about um, uh, Regen Network and and your kind of hope and vision and and uh, yeah, what prayer are you holding? Sure. Um, gosh, well. I'm really, I think, I mean, I, I mean in, the, in the context of this, this moment, the way I would describe everything is, you know, I have this idea or this understanding that's emerged that, um, that there's sort of a vestigial organ of, of humanity that, um, connects us to place and connects us to the health of of the larger than human we that we're a part of and that that vestigial organ is actually it's not an individual like it's not like our eyes or our nose or our ears or our heart it's actually a cultural organ and it has to do with you know human intactness being embedded in sort of in community and in fact in community that isn't just human <laughs> I guess you might say and so you know at this stage I have this idea or understanding that 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 regenerating and rehydrating and renewing that vestigial organ needs to happen as a in in kind of like a global in a global scale <laughs> um, not in a grandiose way, but it just needs to be accessible by all, by everybody. And it needs to connect us to a planetary home that is common. And yeah, I just, you know, my, I guess my prayer is that the work that we're doing at, at Region Network is in service to that. And that the, all of the tensions and balancing acts and tough decisions and science and technology and economics and you know go-to-market strategies and community building and all of these ways in which um we make this endeavor concrete and try to build something sourced from um from sort of a, a a new and old paradigm at the same time that that we that we do all of those things you know, with enough grace and humility to to not get in our own way <laughs> in in actually serving to regenerate this vestigial organ and and actually regrowing that capacity of humanity, which I think is a is actually an intrinsic capability that we can regenerate and and maintain and grow, which is sort of attuning culture, commerce, exchange, um, status up to the health of, of life, 
basically. I think that's a capability that we can regenerate. And so I'm, I'm just praying that we do that, you know, we do a good job. I do a good job. I, you know, am humble enough to listen and, and can find ways to articulate that in the right context to the people who are listening in a way that meets them where they're at, whether it's a business opportunity or a, or a technological innovation or a scientific necessity, whatever it is that that, that the essence of what we're doing doesn't get lost in all of the translations that need to take place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and, and in some ways, it, it doesn't even matter uh, what the avenue is for us to do this work, right? That that the because I, I, I share that prayer with you, right? It, it it's sort of um, it's it's by any means necessary <laughs> that we would we would approach the the the, the healing of that organ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, thank you for doing it the way you do it. Yeah, I mean, it's for the work you do. Total honor, and it you know gives me a lot of joy and meaning. And I'm just so grateful. I get to work on w- what I love and what I feel is meaningful, and support my family in doing it, and um, live a good life. And um, I, I would, you know, if I was going to complain, I'd love to spend a little less time in front of my computer screen <laughs> and a little bit more time with my hands in the dirt. That sounds lovely, but. Uh, that this will come as well. This will come as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. Thank you, brother. thank you for that parting question. And yeah, lots of blessings to you and the and the Brave Earth crew down there. And um, thank you, brother. Yeah. Say hello. Yeah, we gotta have you back here at some point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can't wait to, to to show you what's happening.